0: Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Miletic, and today we have perhaps, um, in fact, I'm sure, um, not just perhaps, the most salubrious guest we've ever had in our humble little studio. Uh, Firstly, we have UK architect John McCaslin. Born in Glasgow, John John, uh, McCaslin was educated at uh, Dunoon Grammar School, is that correct? Correct. Correct. There you go. And the University of Edinburgh, uh, obtaining an MA in architecture in 1977 and a diploma the following year. Uh, trained in Boston in the US and then going on to found John McClassen and Partners. Is it John McClassen and Partners M- or Plus Partners? Uh,
1: McCaslin, McCaslin and funny A, I mean a funny plus sign.
0: Yes, a plus funny plus funny plus sign in 1996, where he remains as the executive chairman. Um, McCaslin was McCaslin... Sorry, yes. you, think, yeah. you think with my name I could pronounce yeah, anyone's fine. name. Um, was named World Architect of the Year in 2009 by Building Design Magazine and appointed a commander of the order oh, of the, that's the that's British that's Empire. Yes, exactly. Background music, please. In 2012. Together with John, we also have, now Now, now I'll probably misspell your name, uh, mispronounce rather, Troy Ullman.
2: That's fine.
0: Thank you. It's the Managing good. Director of McHaslin Partners in Sydney. Troy has over 25 years of experience with sensitive and complex cultural university commercial and master planning projects and is one of nine AIA Male Champions that of Change. Was one. Was one of nine <laughs> Male Champions of Change committed to professional, professional gender equality and advancing flexible consultative practice settings. So welcome John and Troy and I feel to be honest with you, I feel quite privileged and honoured uh, that both of you took, took time out of your busy schedules to have a chat with us here at Talking Architecture and Design. So, welcome. Thank,
1: Thank you. you, Branko. Great to be here.
0: Okay. So, the firm, after 23 years, if my math is correct, um, um, you've finally opened up shop here in the Antipodes. Um, firstly, can I ask why? And secondly... What are your initial impressions in terms of architecture and urban planning in terms of Sydney and um, perhaps Australia in a wider context?
1: Well, um, uh, Branko, I I came to Sydney first probably early in probably mid-1990s to do a a bit of teaching and at that point I think that it, it did seem such a far off place. I mean, you know, you really did feel you were on the other side of the world. Um, but as a practice, as we began to build o- overseas, and about half of our work is now overseas, Australia it seemed to be closer than perhaps I'd perceived it 25 years ago. And um, we, a bit like the States, where we now have a little studio, we thought, well, why, you know, we should be looking to to try and develop some projects here and we were very fortunate to be on a tender list with um, Woods Baggett for the Central Station project mm-hmm. for our client Lang O'Rourke and it sort of um, it probably, it felt a good project to be bidding for because a lot of the ingredients at Central seemed to re- be comparable to Kings Cross Station which we designed and um, you know, it's a great historic station in an area that was sort of being regenerated. All of this f- urbanistically, a lot of the same conditions, as well as being, you know, equivalent in kind of architectural historical significance. So, you know, the the comparisons were were unbelievably interesting. So we submitted with uh, for Langs, with Langarott, with Woods Bagot, and we were fortunate enough to be appointed. And um, so that was the reason, really. It was a single first project, and we uh, Troy joined us, which was which mm-hmm. was great, and he leads the the practice here. And so we've sort of begun to build a studio around that first project. Um, so that was really it. It was a project, which is usually the way that we've worked over. You know, when we when we've set up a studio, or you know, we've usually gone somewhere where because it's a project that either we've bid for and we've won or uh, we are bidding for. So it's usually pr- a project base, a project studio. The difference here is that we've taken a sort of commitment to p- properly set up shop. So this isn't a project office. We have a studio in mm-hmm. Buckingham Street along the road from you, yep. which is great. This is a fabulous area, I think Surrey Hills. And so we're committed to developing projects. So beyond central, we're looking at a bunch of things, and you know it's it's such an exciting place to be um, because things you know n- you know things are happening. You've got all, obviously all the metro work. There's mm-hmm. 20 billion dollars or thereabouts of investment mm-hmm. in the metro. Um, you know there's s- things are happening at speed. People want to do stuff. People want to build stuff. There's a very positive attitude to. You know international architects so it's open it's a great place to do business so it's you know i'm i enjoy it more and more every time i can i mean i come about every six weeks i enjoy it more and more because it's such an open you know vibrant environment to be in um so it's it's, it's brilliant
0: uh, i hope you're enjoying our our, our vibrant smoke-filled environment these well
1: days. today's today's all right but <laughs> it listen, is you know it's um yesterday was a little bit reminded me a bit of new delhi or yeah, or Mumbai or something Mumbai. like that, which I'm used to, so it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know. But I appreciate it you know, it's problems associated with. it.
0: It's interesting uh, now. I know, I know you're constricted in what you can and can't say about about the Central Project or Central Station Project, but it's interesting you say that. So, yes, it, it was the East Croydon Interchange and the King's Cross as well. I've noticed in the UK, which you guys worked on, it was very similar in terms of well. In 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 the in the pictures, it looks very similar in terms of layout and even. Kind of similar in terms of style. It's a Victorian style. Is is well, is, 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 is that is that uh, one one thing? Is that, is, have I got, well, that
1: correct? Well, I, I not not these, uh, put aside East Croydon. I'm not sure what the comparisons are there. But I mean, I think what was interesting. about it, if you look at King's Cross, I mean, King's Cross had been added, built in 1852. Had been added, the station had been extended m- many times. There had been a kind of ugly concourse built to the south in the 60s. It was operating at capacity. Um, there was the St. Pancras station project immediately mm-hmm. to its west, which was underway uh, and was connecting to the Channel Tunnel Rail Link. There's a big London Underground project connecting to St. Pancras and was going to connect to King's Cross. So they were all, and, we're, and this is t- like in the early 2000s, and London was bidding for the Olympics. So when London got the Olympics in 2005, um, St. Pancras was underway and nearly complete the Channel Tunnel Rail Link was about to become operational and King's Cross became the, you know, a project of, a kind of priority project funded by the Department for Transport. So it was fully funded. It was a kind of key project in part of the London's Olympic story. And um, the key for us there was to sort of strip away all the bits of of deleterious stuff and go back to the original station and then extend it so as it could work for the increasing passenger numbers and sort of repair it. And in a way Central is is different in that there is a metro interchange I mean that's the, the purpose of the project, is inserting the metro but, and the station is obviously very sensitive to work with but there was the need to provide some form of concourse new concourse element so in terms of the need Kings Cross and um, you know Central was very similar to um, uh, Central was very similar to to uh, King's Cross in that a concourse element, above mm-hmm. grade concourse, was part of the part of the um, the construct. And what we did at King's Cross was to effectively design a you know like a big room for the city. That's what the concourse is. And in a way, the same idea seemed to have. there's a kind of an equivalent need at Central. So the new element. Mm-hmm that we're designing with Woods is is similarly, or um, well the major new visible element, I guess, above ground is the Northern Concourse, which similarly is a big right. room for the city. It's a mm-hmm. place of interchange and aspect and, you know, an open volume sort of kind of, de- we, we call it like a dem- democrat, dem- democratized space like King's Cross, so people right. feel welcome and it's open and it's everything else. So there's a lot of ingredients which just come through in a way programmatically the need, but also the fact that both historic stations needed to be treated sort of respectfully and anything that was new needed to complement and relate to what was historic. So, you know, we were just fortunate that there was a kind of precedent project. Obviously there's many differences, but there's a present project which acts as a kind of some of perhaps some of the things that we got right at King's Cross allowed us to to use a similar sort of approach.
2: I think, you too, those, those... Is that right? In both, yeah, I think so. But In both of those examples, King's Cross and the Sydney Central project, those spaces become fantastic orienting spaces.
1: Right, exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: They become part of the wayfinding, sort of more mm-hmm. intuitive approach mm-hmm. to getting people in and out of the station and you know being able to find
1: the actual platform and the yep. train that they need to be on. And, you know, the other thing, Branko, that's key is thats that... Is that Good projects, you know, good architect, good architecture emerges often. You know, can only emerge when there's good clients and there's a reason. Well, we had the benefit of Kings Cross. We had a great client, mm-hmm. and there was a, there was a pressure of time to build. And similarly here, we've got a great client and a great project. So you know, the fact, you know, when there's a momentum and the support, and you've got people who are sort of understanding and appreciating what you're trying to do, and you're trying to, therefore, you do the best work. You know, it's it's. Public architecture like this hmm. is the absolutely best stuff to do. You know, this is where we're happiest, where we can, you know, where you're, you know, you've got a, a, you know, there's a kind of urgency, there's a need to do something. It's for the public and you've got a supportive client and people working together collaboratively, which is what this is. So yeah. there's a great sort of team, isn't it? Great
2: yeah, it's, great a, it's great a great client, team. a
1: great consultant team, a fantastic contractor.
2: Fantastic partnership, it's working par- well. So, yeah.
1: I mean, You know that, you know you have to. Those things don't always automatically happen, but when they when they do, when the project is sort of set up in that way, and the governance is set up in that way, and the relationships you get the right relationships, then good things should happen.
0: Architectural window systems are proud supporters of the A and D podcast and the architectural profession throughout Australia. Visit specifyaws.com.au or contact one of our team for support with your next project. Okay, so not, not to go into specifics in any, any project, but since you have experience with this, I mean, what kind of challenges do these kind of projects bring? I mean, I'm sure they're unique, in, you know, in terms of, um, you know, because of, you know, the, the amount of, for example, rail. I'm sure in, in King's Cross there's a lot of rail lines. There's there's overhead power lines. There's, there's um, all sorts of things. What kind of unique challenges do these kind of projects well, bring? It,
1: it, if you compare, I mean, if you to look at St Pancras for a moment in King's Cross... Right. St Pancras closed for four years for the, inser- you know, for the project. King's Cross was operationally continuous. there wasn't a train was cancelled. Central, obviously, there is a it's a it's an operational station, mm-hmm. and to work in an operational environment is obviously very challenging. you you're inserting a huge new piece of infrastructure in something that's live, and that's both challenging and incredibly exciting because you know you're not you're in a in in an environment where things are continuing to happen so you have to plan around
0: that okay
1: you know all that stuff so that's complicated complicated design much more complicated to build to keep people moving and um also one of the things that was probably the hardest at king's cross was to ensure that the traveling public felt and this is the really good point Troy was making about this kind of intuitive wayfinding is to make sure that when the works are in progress the sort of shifting the shifting phasing of the work Mm -hmm. is causes the minimum disruption to the traveling public that's right which is really important you know you've got to continue to use and uh, enjoy and respect the fact that the um, environment of the station is is operational, but of course, at central, there's certain things that happen independent of our project. You know, there's that like kind of amazing new restaurant that's opened yep. up. So you've got other stuff happening, and actually, it's not only is it most challenging, but it's what makes this sort of project, I think, really exciting. Is that you're working with something that's lo- that's real; it exists, it's historically important. You've got to respect that. You've mm-hmm. got to add when you're adding something, it has to be, you know appropriate, but add something that's, you know, we think is, can stand alone, independent of the historic element and be, not challenge it, but be a kind of natural fit. So it's getting that balance, mm-hmm. it can be bold, doesn't mean to say that you have to be kind of submissive or copy what's there, you know, mm-hmm. new and old, when it works well, can be dynamic. And I think, in fairness, going back to King's Cross, we were just, you know, we had a great engineer in Arab, we we're a fantastic client, Network Rail. And there was support from Heritage, what was called Historic Environment England, mm-hmm. local th- uh, and the local authority. So, you know, you had a client team, a statutory team, an urgency, um, all the things, the, those ingredients, you put them all in the pot, and you think, well, that you know, something good should happen. It's exactly the same
0: here. Okay.
1: You know, you're all kind of moving in the same direction, and you've got, you know, there's no time to kind of drift off and sort of be too self-indulgent.
0: Okay, interesting. Okay, to get off train spotting for a, for a, for a little <laughs> while. Um, um,
1: I'll actually, Branko, just one last thing. I mean, I think the, the other issue, when you think about the whole issue of airports, air travel, yeah. climate issues. Mm. Um, you know, the train, train journeys are, you know, public transport yeah. is, is a kind of cool thing to do. You know, it probably wasn't cool 20 or 30 years ago. You know, designing an airport mm. was a cool thing, thing to do. Yeah. I'm not saying it isn't now, but, yeah, but you know, but given the shift, the kind of rapid shift around public transport and and carbon footprints and carbon offsets and everything else, you know, travelling by train is a sort of cool thing to be doing. You know, I actually, I actually you know? quite enjoy it, by the way. I, better, so, it. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. love it.
0: This is one for both of you. Okay, so let's talk about working in an architecture firm because that's been changing for for a little while. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting juxtaposition between, well, this is what someone said to me because I'm not an architect, so I I have to take this on face value, Um, between work culture and output. um, I've heard that uh, your firm has a rather interesting or unique um, way of um, approaching work culture, can you expand on, one, on what is the difference between working at McCaslin Partners and, let's say, somewhere else? And um, is this a reason for the success of the firm?
1: Oh, that's Troy. There <laughs> you go. He can, be bl- he can be bluntly honest.
0: Be bluntly honest, Troy.
1: Well, I
2: think um, what one of the key differences, many, uh, every practice will say that they... Focus on outcomes and they design for the people, the ultimate occupant and and so on. And I think at McAssalines, we actually do do that. And we are, I mean, it's in the the ethos really to this idea of making a difference to people's lives and you know, improving the you know, mm-hmm. the environment, understanding that our projects are actually bigger than the boundaries. They have impacts beyond the boundaries. Right. So we can, we, we do look at a project from its impact on the city, from its impact on the immediate environment. Um, I think we, the, the processes that we go through to, to do that, there's a lot of review, a huge amount of design review that we go through. Um, we explore things physically through models as much as anything, okay. um, models and drawings, sketching. I mean, the, the, the model shop it in London is uh, quite a fantastic asset to the practice.
0: The model shop, sorry?
2: <coughs> the model shop, yes. Yeah. Where, where the models are made. Ah, okay. Um, ah, yes. F- physically, modelling. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds. That sounds like a fun job, actually. It is. It is. I think Liz has a great time. But the. And and John's showing me how many fingers he's lost on his hand making <laughs> models, but the the. I think that process of design, sort of understanding that design, good design comes out of a good process, and making sure that each project starts on that process on that journey uh well and it's well recognized in the practice it's really embedded in the culture of the the practice and the people who work there um, certainly the senior people and how we then translate that or or, or push that down into the deep more deeply into the practice, so that everyone is working in this way that we get um, imagery and pictures out of the computer and up onto the walls, and you can see what's happening. You can see the progress, and people can make comment on that. And through that uh, constant review, almost, we're improving the the quality of the outputs, the quality of the the design, and therefore the quality of the impact that it has on
1: on the users. I think the other thing, Branko, is that. Um, my long-term partner Aiden Potter and I were talking about this, and somebody was interviewing us. I think it actually was interviewing us for uh, we're redoing our website and things. And Aiden and I realised that what's really important—it's sort of un- in a way it's probably unfashionable—is we are from a generation that goes, you know, f- I think if the you know I worked at Richard Rogers' office, Richard, who was brilliant you know, goes back and is inspired by the architecture of, you know, Louis Cannes or Pierre Chirot at the Maison de Verre, those became, or were, and became heightened reference projects for us, because Mm -hmm. we believed in that Mm -hmm. sort of high-tech as a form of interpretive industrial architecture, which I'm particularly interested in. I'm interested in, uh, you know, uh, industrial architecture, not and so you know industrialization is something in the making of buildings so there's one there's there's one thread another thread would be that you know one of our i worked in the states and from cambridge seven in boston well cambridge seven was founded by seven partners from um who came from varied background but but one of them was scottish guy actually wonderful guy um and uh somebody called Peter Shemaev. Well, Peter Shemaev was the son of Ivan Shemaev. Peter's brother was Serge, who was a great graphic designer. Serge Shemaev was a partner of Erich Mendelssohn. Erich Mendelssohn, who was, you know, Europe's, one of Europe's greatest architects until he fled Berlin in 1933. You know, we worked in the Delaware Pavilion, which is one of Erich Mendelssohn's most important buildings. And, I'm very interested in sort of making those connections back. Those, you know, those connections back to great historic architects who, who, are at the, were absolutely pioneering architects of their mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and an awful lot of our my time has been spent in the past, not, lo- not consciously tracking back, but making relationships with people who have had. A particular influence. So there's a guy I became very friend, older chap called Julius Posner. Julius Posner was a worked in Merrick Mendelssohn's office. Julius mm-hmm. Posner was a great German uh, architectural critic. Um, uh, Julian Posner's background and Mendelssohn's background sort of parallels. He then goes back further in in, in, in sort of German modernist history. So you you can track back, and I think God, you know, we're fortunate as a generation to to perhaps. Unlike perhaps Troy's generation, to go right back. <laughs> you know, when I set up, there's no computers, there's no well, fax, there's yeah. no emails, there was no mobiles. Our first computer was because Apple Computers, a building right. we designed in England, we were given that as part of the deal, we were given computers. Um, so our we're fortunate in that generationally, we go back to a point where, you know, when I worked in the Lloyds building for Richard, it was a hand-drawn building. It was one of the last hand-drawn buildings, Lloyd's of London. Wow! Um, you know, um, the process that Richard's office operated was very, in a way, the culture of that office. Without being too sort of self-aggrandizing with these questions, there's when I decided I was going to set up. I'd worked at Cambridge Seven. Cambridge Seven was a collaborative practice. Right. Seven partners, each sort of worked independently, and so. Somebody was an inf- actually was interested in inf- infrastructure. There was landscape. There was interiors. There was public buildings. There was education. Blah blah. Richard. And but everybody was sort of equal. Right. Richard's office. There was Richard. He was the, you know, he was the commander in chief. He was the conductor. And wonderful guy. But it was a different sort of office. And I, when I realised there was, you know, funny enough at Richard's office, I remember somebody said to me. You know, what are your plans? I was twenty-five. I mean, I said, I "Don't know. I'd love to stay here. I'd love to build my career here." And they said, "No, you don't. You know, we don't want you to build your career here. <laughs> we want you to work in a project, and then go off, mm-hmm. um, and do your own thing or do something else because we'll want to replenish you with somebody else." Okay. So it was the idea that you were there for a project, for maybe five years or whatever it was, but then you'd make your way in the world. So I remember when I set up from a part, an architect who I met at Richard's we sort of built and then we built the practice around some of the the way that Rich, if things had happened at Richard's office which was very open very democratic there was a model it was kind of wonderful but slightly crazy place to work um, and this great history attached you know the great reference projects historically like the you know Louis Kahn's project or, or the Maison de Verre or whatever it might have been and um, And then when Jamie, my partner at that point, and I separated perfectly, the practice I took on sort of in a way became a combination of Richard's office because I was heading it up, Cambridge 7, which was the idea of different studios under this kind of common approach Mm -hmm. which could allow people who were interested, for instance, in transport or culture or education or landscape to focus their skills in a particular way. Because, you know, there's, and what we found is, for instance, if you're a cult, if you're an architect who is interested in culture, you probably aren't an architect who's going to be interested in transport or uh, okay. commercial buildings. So we have a culture team of uh, 15 people, principally in London, who are, who that's all they do. They design museums and and cultural projects. We're performing arts building, whatever it is. And they work you know and, and and at the top end of the thing the senior most people of those that's all they do there's a degree of flexibility around more junior staff who mm. can move from one sort of project to another but the nucleus of the practice is based around specialisms and expertise and it, which i which i think is for us really works well because it means that people can become expert you know specialists experts is all they really do and You know, and if they, you know, if you became, if you're interested in a cultural building, that's probably all you want to be doing, or education. You know, those sorts of projects are, and it means that we can pitch for those sorts of projects because we're a portfolio of cultural projects. We're not kind of learning on the job. So, in a way, the practice is set up by the, absolutely from the way, without being too self indulgent from the way I was trained and the people that we work with and the history that they came from, and, um, and and I think it's worked well because we still have a kind of common approach.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a studio project. It means that you know, we, don't have a, we don't have an approach where somebody designs something and then they pass it to somebody who's going to produce the detail. The okay. person who produces the design develops the detail and people want to do that. They don't oh. want to hand over, lose ownership. The whole of the project. The, the whole okay. of the project. Now, that is n- not efficient, actually, always because it means that you're getting people who are learning to on the job but it's Mm. incredibly important i think if you want as an architect to understand not just design something to build it the thrill Mm. of building something Mm. and knowing how things are put together Mm. rather than you know the idea that you would design something and then you pass it to an executive firm who sort of details it up or you send it to a a drawing shop somewhere is the anathema to the way that we work because i think that's it's about a, it's about a single, a st- oh, like a one team structure, a one team culture. Okay. No, it's not the most efficient way of working. Mm-hmm. You know, in the states, for instance, you've got design architects, you've got executive architects. Usually, it's because it's geographical; the country's right. so big. In Britain, we don't have that. We don't okay. have design executive architects because the country's so small. Uh, and when we've done it, executive, ar- I mean, executive architects are thought of as a, you know, l- l- in a way that's, you know, you wouldn't, you would want to do everything. And therefore, we've tried to follow the model where in the studio, people do everything. Okay. You know, they brief the model builder. The, the, the model builder is a central part of the of the operation. And we haven't really changed. You know, the the technology's changed, but the process of working hasn't changed in 25 years,
2: mm. really. But I think, too, one, no, o- one, of the, one of the great things about that is through the different studios and different specialisations, when we do get together quite regularly and have reviews, all of those people are mixed together. So the innovation you get by having somebody who's working on galleries and performing arts spaces mm-hmm. looking at a train station Correct. is amazing. I mean, that that really lifts the
1: game. To mm. the uh, and I think the other thing just <coughs> taking that, Troy, is that when we have our design reviews, everybody attends. So. Yeah. The youngest member, the newest member of the team is given a set voice, equal voice to the most senior person. And so we try to break down the sense of hierarchy mm-hmm. w- as much as we possibly can. And you know, listen, we constantly think we get, we're constantly learning. It's also all the time I'm thinking, why did we make such a mess of that? Why why didn't we do that better? So it's this constant learning, mm-hmm. trying to m- make things better, trying to make the way we were better, trying to be you know behave differently when you're getting frantic about something it's all it's always learning I mean, we never stop trying to be do things better
0: architectural window systems are proud supporters of the AND podcast and the architectural profession throughout Australia visit specifyaws.com.au or contact one of our team for support with your next project I know I like this self-indulgent theme, so um,
1: <laughs> I've got to say that
0: um, your practice—that is
1: the process. That is
0: it's a an very, interesting process. A very,
1: very, very rarely talk. We never very, very rarely talk about it in terms of trying to explain to people how it is. But but that's that is the way it is. It's, it's got these hysterical, hysterical, hysterical historical connections which have informed the way. You know, for instance, an architect like Glenn Market, right? Who I remember meeting. Twenty-five years ago, when mm-hmm. I came to Australia, who I thought was just brilliant, and, and not only he wasn't just brilliant because he's a brilliant architect, and he w- it was his engaging way that he had s- the specific specificity, is that right? Mort- of how he worked, and the fact that he was, you know, he told me how he did projects, and the fact that you know he'd do two A one sheets and he drew by hand, and. Blah, blah, and that was it. You know, he did two A one sheets. Everything was drawn by hand. It was built, and look at the output—fantastic. Mm-hmm. And he had a very specific way of working. And I, I imagine he's still working like that. He's still practising that. I, I, I don't know if I think actually he
0: is. I think I think you're, nothing's changed. With Glenn no. You
1: know, and and you. Th- I I remember I said to him that um, I loved the kind of slight rigidity with the way he worked because it's not what we do. But I remember the conversation was that I said you have an assistant then he said no 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 i had an assistant once trying to do my australian accent and i said well what happened he said well it didn't really work i said what happened he said well it was i was designing a house and he uh, drew a door handle and he drew the door handle at 1100 and i said why are you drawing that Uh, he said because that's the right height he said no it's not it's 900, I only do 900 and lines up the switches. Da, da. He said, well, I think it should be 1,100 and the guy left.
0: Wow. Well, so he left. Okay. <laughs> no, over, a <laughs> <handle>. <laughs> over a door handle.
1: Over a door handle. But, you know, that's not, that's the way he worked. That's okay. the, if you're going to work with Glen Market, that is the language. That's the, these are the rules. And Um, it wasn't, I just thought, and I remember I thought, Exactly. You know, you have to hold on to whatever it is you think is important. He wants to draw all his buildings, craft every single detail. And, you know, because he's a true artist, he wants Mm -hmm. to, and therefore you see the output, he knows every single inch of that project Mm -hmm. is his. He's got phenomenal ownership of it, and it's very, very specific. And that form of architecture, and, of course, we, we you know, we, we work differently, but we have the same sense of sort of ownership of a project. We try to own the detail. Um, he's one extreme of that process, which I admire hugely. Ours is a slightly different approach, mm-hmm. but the idea that you kind of delegate out design creative responsibility to me isn't. You know, we, we just we can't do that. It's it's a very uncomfortable place to be, and um, uh, and of course in architecture now you've got to find other ways of you know a project is complex it's, as say central mm-hmm. King's Cross you have to find different ways because you can't control every detail so the world is not impossible you can't mm. do projects of that scale complexity and be so self-indulgent <laughs>
0: On that point on that point, you guys have picked up or your firm's picked up a number of oh no, the ReBA awards um, so what does that actually mean for a firm or an architect an award or in, in, in local in AIA awards or whatever um, is that um, are those kind is that kind of recognition the pinnacle of of, of, of your of your work or is, is it enough to to to, um, to award someone for something that may stand 50 60 Eighty, maybe a hundred years, um, in ter- in in terms in terms of the industry.
1: Well, you don't. We we've, we've won a lot. Of, I mean, we have won a lot. Of, like, like two hundred awards or something like that, and a thirty RIBA or something like that. But so I'm. It's funny because I used to not be so concerned, but my son is in advertising, and he was saying, you know. Um, in the business he's in, it's all about winning awards. There's yeah. something they win it can, mm-hmm. which he's always, he said that oh, we got this can of water. Mm-hmm. And it's never really been, it's only imp- important because it's a sort of peer recognition that, right. but I I think that it's, it sounds kind of a bit wet, but, you know, it's it's when the, Client is a sort of recognition, also for the cl- you know clients like right. winning awards. We yeah. did, we finished a project recently. It was an Albans Museum, not a huge project, and we got a bunch of awards. And the client was unbelievably excited by winning awards. Went we had, there was mm-hmm. some sort of award gala. She went up and got the award. <coughs> she loved it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's you realise that it's part of that. Yeah, you know, celebrating success. And Troy went to the came to you can went mm-hmm. to the award ceremony. And I think. You know, people like that. People in the team like winning awards. Our clients like winning awards. Mm -hmm. You know, they love being part of it. It's part of the sort of little celebrity that we have as architects. Mm -hmm. Winning an award is is a big deal for the people who worked on the project. You know, people like it. They like being, you know, being part of a successful outcome. Mm -hmm. You know,
2: that's, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think too, the easiest way to win an award is to set up to do the best building.
1: Yeah, exactly. Not, mm-hmm.
2: not go out with the intention that we're going to win an oh award. Oh God, no. No, that's, no, no. That's okay. a disaster. That's a disaster. Okay. okay. And so if, if you just sort of focus your mind on ma- doing the best possible and, and making the best outcome, best project, I mean... Getting that recognition from peers and the impact that that has on the on the team and the the client group and e- even the place where it is. I mean, you the recognition that that library or in the gallery in St Alban's case is a recognised project. I mean that that has an impact beyond itself.
1: Okay. You know, and it's quite a, com- Branco. I'm sure you. I mean, you know. I mean, it's a competitive business. Architect. It is. So you know. You, you measure to a degree, if particularly for a practice like ours, which is commercially not, you know, we're not a huge practice. We measure our success by great projects, not by, you know, it's nice if we if we make a profit and we can reward people well, but we measure it by the success of what we do and the, you know, um, the the awards we achieve and the recognition through. Decent article written, you know, that, that's our ego needs that. We need to feel that that made it worthwhile. And you know, occasionally when you get a really bad article written mm-hmm. and you, you get wounded badly, you got to think, Well, that's part of the game, okay? You know, or you don't win the award that you thought you'd win, that's part of the game. You've got to okay. just, you know.
0: Architectural window systems are proud supporters of the a and d podcast and the architectural profession throughout Australia visit specify dot com dot or contact one of our team for support with your next project yeah, but let's let's talk about um legacy okay mm-hmm. you both young ish. Oh, you're so kind, um, <laughs> Christmas is coming soon. Did I, did I mention that? No. Um, can I ask what you know? There is. It's not just when you mention awards, and it's nice, to, nice to get that and an ego and whatnot. There is also a point, whether you like it or not. There is also a point of legacy, isn't there, with architects? So, so what kind of legacy would you guys like to be remembered for, or to, or to leave?
1: I'm going to let Troy finish. But the bit that I'm most interested in is it's not so much legacy. It's that as you get older, you have an ability, hopefully, to be able to be clearer about what you think is right and what you think is wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, I don't know what that is. a wisdom, is experience, whatever it is. It's not so much legacy. But what I really like now as I get older... Is the ability to be able to say, and I'm sure I'm wrong a lot of the time, you know, that's the way we should do something. Uh, you know, that's what, and then for people to follow, be comfortable to follow that. And to me, it's not so much legacy; it's the ability to make decisions, which you know are r- for complicated, complicated issues, to make s- clear decisions about how what you should do on a, let's say, on a big complicated project. To say mm. right obviously that's not always easy but you say right let's do it this way and um that to me is not so much legacy is the ability to see the way through something see the way through a problem okay and that's the bit that i like most now is being able to assert some experience in projects which is sort of a, you know, architects mature, kind of old, in the most professions. And, and actually, fun enough, when you ever read a newspaper and it says, "Describe somebody like in business as a veteran," and I look at it, and I think, "Fucking hell, that person's ten years younger than me, and they're called a veteran." Mm. You know what on earth have I been doing? What have I been doing? But <laughs> architects mature much in many, most cases later. Okay. You know what I mean? You don't. You progress into bigger projects much, much, much later than you would perhaps another. Profession, mm. so it's not so much the legacy but to me, it's being able to make decisions which I love. I mean, I love making decisions because I just that's you know, or, or trying to give a direction to doing something and for people to then believe in that, hopefully, challenge it absolutely. But once you've made a decision, sticking to it and the legacy, sure. Are you happy to answer that bit?
2: Well, I, I think from a practice point of view, the, I mean, the practice has quietly... I mean, we, we have, um, in this day and age, issues around sustainability, energy mm-hmm. use, material materials, materiality, and, and so on. And what, one of the unique things about Macassan Partners is this idea that we reuse and recycle existing buildings. And, <coughs> pardon me, a lot of our work... Uh, is based around this reinvigoration of existing buildings, existing urban fabric.
0: Adaptive reuse, you mean?
2: Adaptive reuse, reinvention of those things, you know, representing them back to the public in new forms with, with added pieces. And, you know, often, you know, we, we don't shout from the, the rooftops, but often these uh, meet quite high sustainable and environmental um, criteria. You know, passive house and so on. The, the I, I guess where I'm headed is the uh, sort of the legacy of that across the last 20 odd years of the practice. Um, you know, quietly moving forward in that way. Um, it, it would be great to continue that and mm-hmm. you know, to be able to reach back into the history of the practice and 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 see, you know, the progression of that over time.
1: And I think Branko sorry to just do one more question is the whole social agenda in the practice is very strong yeah when you talk as yeah. Troy's mentioned there about reuse absolutely it's the social agenda is a big deal in the mm-hmm. practice and it's always been like that um you know we initiate projects that are socially related projects so for instance in mm. Kings Cross this is true. there was a major project we did which wasn't we didn't design which was a which was a we took a kind of and we still did this we took a kind of like a radius around the project we say well what where, what else could we do here that's out with the project and in that case there was a couple of them but one in particular which was called the new horizon youth Center and that was a fantastic place where young people who were had issues of depend you know, dependency issues you know alcoholism back, poor back you know poor education blah, blah, blah all these things mental health issues and we this is again about 15 years ago we set up a initiative which which effectively our client, Network Rail, and others supported this project to a point where we were able to initiate a competition won by a really good architect called Adam Kahn that was built, got funding from the government from what's called the Big Lottery, built a communal space on the site, all through this social commitment to that project. And so the, that part of the culture of the practice is really important right. and lots of the young, particularly younger architects join us because they see that as a part, that a kind of unique thing that we do, mm-hmm. not unique, a lot of people do but it's, it's something that we really, really take very seriously, mm-hmm. which is the, the sort of social initiatives that we uh, embed in the culture of the practice and... Um, that Makes us feel good because it means that you know you could you're doing something in addition to mm. just the project yourself, you're yeah. trying to add whether it's homelessness, which is something where uh, Troy's leading up
2: in Sydney, yeah. right,
1: okay. so looking at, 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 at hidden homelessness in particular, or um, and that's something that's really important to us. Is so if the legacy, going back to your question of legacy, legacy mm. f- would actually for me been that you know the the idea there is some social good that we brought through architecture mm-hmm. not just the projects themselves but those additional the additionality of what architecture can bring that goes beyond the you know the bricks and mortar or whatever of the project itself
0: well that has been absolutely fascinating well, you um,
1: you've had your money's worth
0: right? i ha- i actually have had my money's worth i really really <laughs> appreciate I'm, I'm i'm quite privileged and thank you very much for coming in You're and talking very to me
1: kind. Good
0: good. um John McCaslin, Troy Ullman, um, I hope to see you again.
1: I hope so. Um, okay, and I think we shall. Good.
0: You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Miletic, and until next time, goodbye.